We can do one of two things with our doubts and with our questions. We can allow our doubts and questions to drive us from the scriptures or to drive us to the scriptures. So here we got a couple of things to wrestle with. First of all, this questioning of them to themselves, what this rising from the dead might mean. So the way that Mark words this phrase here, the word here that's translated kept, in, in our language, in English, keep or kept, it could mean two things. It could mean to render obedience, such as she kept her word or he kept his promise or he kept the rules. But it also could mean just keeping, such as holding on. And the word that Mark uses here is not the word for rendering obedience. It's the word for keeping to yourself or, or keeping something secret. So they kept it, meaning that they kept it from others. They kept this. But then the word that Mark uses here that's translated questioning what this, what this might mean, it's a word that's, that's really a forceful word that portrays the idea of fixation, of a fixation upon, upon a, a, a latching on to something, a, a zeroing in, a focusing in on something. So the, the, the flow here, the, the idea that Mark is speaking of is this, that they obeyed, they, they kept it from other people, but while they were keeping it to themselves, they became fixated, they become transfixed upon the time frame. What does this time frame mean? They become fixated upon this rising from the dead. So just to kind of give it as an illustration or, or an example, something sort of like this. If, if I were to say, um, do not tell your sister what we got her for her birthday until the party. And you were to say, party? There's a party? When is this party? Is it here? Is it is it today? Is it tomorrow? Who's coming to this party? You see, that's the idea is that you, you keep it to yourself, but in your keeping it to yourself, what you become fixated upon is understanding the time frame of it. That is what Mark is communicating here. They kept it to themselves, but they become fixated upon this rising from the dead. The question of what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, the disciples are not completely ignorant of what resurrection from the dead means. It's not as though they're saying, what in the world could it mean to rise from the dead? Who's ever heard of that? That's not what they're saying, because they know what rising from the dead means. They've seen it. In fact, these same three apostles have seen it in the home of Jairus. Furthermore, it was a common sort of reality or aspect of not only the Jewish faith, but also of pagan faiths or pagan belief systems as well. There was a belief in the resurrection from the dead among pagans. You remember back in chapter 6, Herod, King Herod, that was his excuse or his reasoning that he put behind Jesus. He said, well, this Jesus character must be who? John the baptizer come back from the dead. Furthermore, there's going to come a conversation in Mark 12 between a group known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group of Jewish believers who were sort of the theological liberals of the day. They didn't believe in the resurrection and some other things. If, if the Sadducees were alive today, they would be sort of the, the left field 
of those who might call themselves Christian. They, they would be the believers. They would be the Christians who were, were saying that Christians can be Christian and gay or that, uh, that uh, uh, they would be the ones calling homosexual pastors and that sort of thing. So that would be the Sadducees. They were the theological liberals and they were the group that didn't believe in the resurrection. And so there comes a conversation in chapter 12 about the resurrection. And the conversation takes place in a context in which it's just understood that everybody except the Pharisees believes in this resurrection. So there was a common belief in the resurrection of the dead, but that resurrection of the dead was exclusively a resurrection that came at the end of the age. Think with me of the words of Martha in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, of course, Martha is there at the grave of her brother Lazarus. And Jesus says to her, Martha, if you believe, you will see your brother again. And she says, Lord, I know that I will see him again at the resurrection at the end of the age. And then Jesus goes on to redefine resurrection for her by saying to her, I am the resurrection and the life. So there was this common belief in a resurrection from the dead at the end of the age. And that was the extent of the Jewish belief in the resurrection at that point. This resurrection that's coming at the end of the age that we too believe in. So why was it so puzzling for these three disciples that Jesus mentions the resurrection at the end of the age? That don't tell anyone until, notice what he says, until the Son of Man is risen again at the resurrection. So just common sense tells us, this is real simple, you don't need anybody to, to point this out to you, but in order to, in order to partake in a resurrection, you have to first be dead, right? You can't be raised unless you are dead. Therein lies the conundrum. Therein lies the problem for the disciples as Jesus says, keep this to yourself until I rise from the dead. Wait a minute. To rise from the dead... He has to be dead. Now, he's already told them that, but clearly the disciples are yet to really grasp that. Clearly they are still wrestling with that. Look at John chapter 16. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I'm going to the Father. You see they're, they're wrestling with it. What is this man talking about? that he's here and then he won't be here and then he's coming back. They're clearly wrestling with this idea of the Son of Man, of the Messiah, entering into death. And such a conundrum is easy for us to see, is it not? He is the Messiah. We just confessed him to be Messiah. How can God's Messiah die? How can that happen? And so you can see how they're wrestling with this idea. In my mind, I've got this picture of Jesus. They're walking down from the mountain and, and Jesus is, is maybe leading the way. And maybe two, three, four steps behind Jesus are these three. And they're whispering to each other. What? What did he say? What, what does he mean? Rise from the dead. Is, is he going to die? What is he talking about? So they... So, they are questioning what this rising from the dead means. Verse 11. And so they asked him. Now, if I was, if I was writing this, that's not the question I would have written. <laughs> if you were writing this, that's not the question you would have written either, is it? Because if we were writing this, the question we would have put in their mouths is the question that they asked themselves. We would have said, 
Jesus, explain this rising from the dead to us. That's what we would have said. But that's not their question. They say the question is, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? So now we need to kind of wrestle a little bit with this question of, well, first of all, why are they asking about Elijah? Secondly, why are they not asking about the question that we were just told that they were wrestling with? Well, I think that the reason that they ask about Elijah, maybe first of all, is is because Elijah was just brought to their mind because they just saw him, right? They just saw Elijah. And so fresh in their mind is this seeing of Elijah. And now maybe that just begins to ring some theological bells in their mind. And they say, wait a minute. Haven't the scribes always taught us that Elijah comes first? So now another conundrum lands in their lap. And this conundrum is, hang on. Things are out of order. Because the Messiah is here. And he's been here now three decades, and we've been following him now two years or more. And we just saw Elijah. And so could it be that God has gotten some things out of order in his prophetic utterances? Could it be that things are not happening as he said they would happen? Could it be that God has failed to do something that he said he would do, which is to send Elijah before the Messiah. And so I think that's the reason for their question. Instead of saying, what about this rising from the dead sort of thing? They're still wrestling with that. But instead of asking that, now their problem is, wait a minute. If Elijah, if we just saw Elijah and Elijah has now come, but Messiah is already here and we professed you to be he. So help us to understand why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? So now let's just uh, turn our thoughts to the Elijah question itself. Why this thing, why this prophecy about Elijah must come first? And in wrestling with that, we'll sort of work through some of these other, these other questions that we're being faced with. So they say, don't, why do the scribes, Jesus, why do the scribes teach that Elijah must come first? So why did the scribes teach that Elijah must come first? The reason the scribes taught that Elijah must come first is because that's what the Bible had said, is that Elijah must come first. If we were to turn to the book of Malachi, this is in your notes, so you don't necessarily have to turn here, but you can look in your notes. But if you want to turn, the book of Elijah is the last book of your Old Testaments. And the last book of your Old Testament is the book that begins from uh, really chapter 3 of Malachi. It begins talking about this prophecy that is to come, this coming of, of the Lord, the day of the Lord, really at the end of chapter 4, which is the last two or three verses of the Old Testament in our English Bible, those are the three verses that are key for us, okay? So those verses come in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, and here are those verses. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction." So pretty plain there, Malachi says quite straightforwardly, I will send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And I will send him in an act of restoration, this act to restore the children's hearts to the fathers and the father's hearts to the children. In other words, to restore the family, to restore harmony, to restore obedience to the law, to restore something back to the land that it was intended to be. So this is the disciples' question. Why do the scribes say this? Which, before we go any further, let's just make note of the fact of what the disciples did 
in the midst of their non-understanding, in the midst of their perplexity, in the midst of their not understanding why things now seem out of order, why they've been commanded to silence, why he's talking about being raised from the dead. In the midst of their perplexity, the disciples do what? They take their perplexity to Jesus. They go to Jesus and they ask him, explain this to us, show this to us, help us to see, help us to understand. They have done precisely the right thing which is to take their questions to Messiah and say, help us to understand. We can do one of two things with our doubts and with our questions. We can allow our doubts and questions to drive us from the scriptures or to drive us to the scriptures. God in his wisdom and in his providence not only allows, but he desires for there to be questions in our hearts. God does not want us to have all the answers. He wants us to wrestle with questions in part because he wants those questions to continually drive us to him instead of pushing us away from him. This is precisely what the disciples do in this instance. They are driven to the Lord. So think with me. There's so many examples that I could point to, but I just want to point out Habakkuk. Remember the story of Habakkuk, how Habakkuk is shown these awful, these horrid visions of what the judgment, the wrath of God that is coming to God's people and just what an awful thing that's going to be. And he's filled with questions, namely, Lord, how can you do that? Why would you do that to your people? But those questions drive Habakkuk to his knees to say, God, help me to see, help me to understand. God doesn't then reveal everything to Habakkuk, but nevertheless, it has served the purpose by taking Habakkuk placing him on his knees before the Lord and saying, God, I've got questions. God, I've got non-understandings. I've got misperceptions. Help me to see and help me to see rightly. So their perplexity, instead of getting all sideways with Jesus, instead of saying, you know what? We are just sick of not understanding anything this guy says. Everything, everything always seems to have two sides to it and one side we don't understand. I'm just tired of this. I'm done. Once we get down to the bottom of the mountain, I'm done. Instead of that, their question drives them to Jesus to ask, Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? In their mind, they're thinking of the teachings of the scribes, which is this teaching that Elijah must come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So now verse 12, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. So the first thing that Jesus does is he affirms the scribal understanding of that prophecy. Elijah does come first. And then furthermore, Jesus goes further. Elijah does come first to do his restoration work, to restore all things as the prophecy said. The prophecy said to turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers back to the children. So Elijah does come first. So Jesus acknowledges, which is a little bit out of the ordinary, right? Jesus is normally castigating the scribes. He's normally refuting the the religious leaders and their understandings of the scriptures. But here he's not. Here he affirms their understanding because because Jesus doesn't want to just be opposed to the scribes just for the sake of being opposed to them. So in this instance, their perception is right. Their understanding is right. And so Jesus says so. He says, Elijah does come first, but how is it written that the Son of Man, that of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So Jesus returns it back. 
on a dime, reverses it back to the topic of his suffering. We'll come back to that. But I tell you that Elijah has come. So now he goes a little bit further. So he says, not only are they right in their teaching that Elijah must come first, but he has already come. So here's a couple things to see here. First, as Jesus recognizes the correctness of their perception, they perceive the, the scriptures correctly, but nevertheless, they, they interpret them wrongly or apply them wrongly. Or to say it another way, the scriptures that pointed them to the Messiah, they understood rightly, but then failed to see the Messiah that they pointed to. Or in this instance, failed to see the forerunner of the Messiah that they pointed to. So do you see that in the text? Do you see how they understood it rightly, but the effect of the text, which was to point them to the forerunner, which was pointing them to the Messiah, that part didn't play out. That part they, they didn't get. And this isn't the first time. There's other instances as well. The one that comes to my mind is Matthew 2. We looked at this text back at Christmas. The Magi, the wise men coming, and they come here to Bethlehem, and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Oh, uh, yeah, that prophecy says he's, he's in Bethlehem. So you'll want to go down there to Bethlehem. Meanwhile, we'll get back to whatever we were doing. You see, they understood rightly the texts and the prophecies that pointed to Messiah, yet they still failed to see Messiah that the text pointed to that they properly understood. You see? So this has happened before. That understanding what the passages are saying and what the prophecies are saying didn't necessarily mean that they connected in their hearts the Messiah or the forerunner to the Messiah that they were pointing to. In other words, the scribes had a, a, a fixation upon, a, a devotion to, a traditional, literal, wooden understanding of that passage that though they understood what the passage was saying, nevertheless, their traditional way of viewing that failed to let them see the actual Messiah that it was pointing to. They had a, 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 an attachment, an attachment to a certain way of seeing the text, a certain way of understanding the prophecy that in itself prevented them from seeing what the prophecy pointed them to. That will become more apparent as we work a little bit further, but hopefully you can see what I'm saying already. As they knew the text, as they knew the prophecies, in their mind they were stuck on a certain way of understanding those prophecies that prevented them from seeing the one that the prophecies pointed to. 